0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vohr and I am your host. I'm so excited. Today's episode is one that is pretty special to me. I talk with Amy Simpson. She's an author, a writer, a speaker, an editor, all sorts of things. Uh, we talk a little bit about Her story and her family's story, she grew up with her dad as a pastor for part of her childhood, and then her mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia, so dealing with that and trying to navigate that while holding on to her faith. She's the author of a book, Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission which a couple years back when i really decided that this was an intersection that i really wanted to help impact and have conversations around i did some searching for books that t- talked about the area as you might imagine there wasn't a whole bunch but her book was the first one that kept popping up so i grabbed a copy and it was one of the first books that i really read while diving into this area so pretty cool for me to get to talk to her and connect. Uh, We get to hear a lot of her story, as I mentioned, with her family and faith and things like that. I did want to mention real quick, there's just a little bit of background noise sometimes when she's talking for the first few minutes. It does go away, so if you can stick it out for just the first couple minutes and it's not too terrible it sounds like somebody's maybe doing some yard work or or something like that so but it does go away as the interview progresses so it's not normal uh, it's not the standard and it won't last the whole time so don't let that turn you off this is a fantastic interview i love hearing from amy and she has a lot of fantastic things to say so you'll want to listen all the way through and hear what she has to say. I also want to point out real quick that she has a new book coming out this month, literally in like a week or so. That book is called Blessed Are the Unsatisfied. There'll be links to that in the show notes. She talks a little bit about that at the end, so make sure that you check that out. But without too much further ado, here is my interview with Amy Simpson. Hey, welcome back. I am so excited today to be joined by Amy Simpson. Amy is an author, speaker, and life and leadership coach who helps influencers get clear on their calling and thrive in times of transition so they can see clearly live boldly, live true, and fully engage in life with guiding purpose. Amy is a creative professional and a former publishing executive, as well as the author of the award-winning books, Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission, which we'll talk a good bit about today. Anxious, Choosing Faith in a World of Worry, and I know you have a new one coming out in 2018, so we can talk about that some. Uh, And she also serves as an editor-at-large for Christianity Today's ctpastors.com, and is a regular contributor for various publications. She loves to travel with her husband, their two teenage girls, and their lovable dog, uh, living with them in the suburbs of Chicago. And I love this bit you wrote, where I'm committed to perfecting my dry sense of humor and reading nearly everything I can. I can definitely relate to those last two. Amy, how are you today?
2: I'm doing fine, thanks. Thanks for having me here with you.
1: Yeah, of course. Other than the things there on that bio, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, I do feel like it's important to um, let people know I actually have two dogs because that—that oh. I that's an old, um old information in that bio because we just <laughs> we actually added another dog to the mix, so uh, don't want to leave little Sam out of the out of the bio. Um, but yeah, I mean that's I guess that's a pretty good encapsulation of of who I am and what I do. I have um, a, about 20 years of history of working in the publishing industry, um, which I don't don't usually mention that much. But um, I've been around books and magazines and articles and websites for a long time and uh, have a real passion for that. Yeah.
1: How did you transition from kind of being on the publishing end of things into the writing aspect? I mean, I know you have a handful of books. Was that kind of an easy transition or did one come before the other or...
2: Yeah, I, so I, I wrote some books a while back that are no longer in print. So I, I did do some some writing of books and you know working full-time at the same time um, a while back. But that's pretty tough to do, at least for me, <laughs> to balance all of that yeah. uh, with my family life as well. Um, so the books that I have in print now are more recent, obviously, and they really came after I made a transition out of my full-time job in publishing and into spending most of my time doing, you know, work on my own. Although I continued to work for a few years on a part-time basis in a publishing job, um, just to help with that transition. Um, and for me, you know, it was really, there were a variety of factors that led me to do that. But one of the big ones was that I, I had books to write and things to say. Um, and I just kind of felt called to do that. And I knew that I, given the demands of my work, um, my full-time work and my family life and just the fullness of my life, I probably was not going to ever write those books while I was working in a full-time job. So I, um, yeah, so I did make the transition, which is an interesting one to make (laughs) and um, continue to, you know, kind of figure out what that looks like and what that means from year to year, month to month, week to week. Um, but it's been a, it's been a great journey and, um, something I, I have really enjoyed, you know, exploring a, a another set of gifts yeah. and, um, a, a bunch of new relationships that have come as a result of that work. Yeah.
1: So what are you doing now kind of in the day to day for you? What does that look like?
2: So I spend about half my professional time doing writing and speaking, And the other half doing coaching. Um, I'm a life and leadership coach. So I work with a lot of clients. Um, I work with clients who are all throughout the U.S., you know, in all kinds of places because I mostly work over the phone or by Skype. Um, And so that takes up about half of my time and is awesome work that I love doing. And then the other half is this writing and speaking. And it, it really looks different. At every week is different for me. It depends on, you know, whether I have a, a trip with a speaking engagement, um, what, what I'm working on in terms of my writing, how much time my coaching is taking, all of that. I, I put it together on a week by week basis and it's always different, which is kind of an adventure. Yeah. Um, I have a, a new book coming out in February that I've been spending a lot of time working on um, over the past couple of years and now i'm i'm turning more of my attention around that to you know getting the word out letting people know that that book is coming and what it's about yeah um and then who knows at some point i may start writing another one we'll see <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> well i'll make sure at the end to ask you some more about that book so people know a little bit about that where to find it but most of i guess our conversation today is going to center around a book that you wrote in well I guess it was published in 2013 I'm uh-huh. assuming you wrote it either the year before or a couple years before uh, and that book is called Troubled Minds Mental Illness and the Church's Mission and this book is born largely out of your personal story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What led you to write this book? Some of your story, the experiences you had growing up?
2: Yeah, so the two there are two big things two big experiences in my life that come together in my passion and my interests around this topic. One of them is that I grew up in a pastor's family. So I was a pastor's kid for 10 years of my life, very formative 10 years. Um, and so I know I have that experience of being in a ministry family and knowing some of the pressures and privileges that are part of that life. Yeah, And at the same time, My family was also affected by severe mental illness. So my dad was a pastor and my mom has schizophrenia, um, which was not known and not apparent while my dad was pastoring. I want to be clear about that. Um, But unfolded over time, grew more and more severe um, as I was growing up. So those two experiences, you know, really come together for me in a passion around the church and its its potential, and its ministry, and its mission, and mental illness, you know, mental health challenges, how they affect individuals and families, and how churches really are well positioned to offer something, to offer a lot more than we tend to offer in that space to people who need right. us. So what was, I mean, you mentioned there that that wasn't
1: Known, uh, she didn't have the the diagnosis when your dad mm-hmm. was a pastor, and then obviously that that would imply that later on he stopped being a pastor, and then she did get a diagnosis and stuff. So how did how did all of that play out?
2: Yeah, so my mom's illness began to unfold at a very classic age for schizophrenia, late teens, um, and that's you know very common. It's common for uh, most people with schizophrenia for it to develop in late teens or early adulthood, and for my mom, that seems to have been the case as well. Although at the, the time that she was living, and you know, maybe the family that she lived in, her life circumstances, it, it just was overlooked and kind of swept under the rug. And that was very common at that time. Um, and it was it was easy for people to um, to miss the signs of mental illness because it wasn't. Commonly understood or known exactly what was going on how to recognize the symptoms or how to respond to them So, um, so that was the case with my mom. It was kind of, you know She was I think developed a reputation as a as a quirky person Maybe a person who was a bit strange or unpredictable um, definitely a a fearful person but not someone who, you know, certainly wasn't identified as someone who had a serious mental illness. My mom married very young. She married when she was 19, um, to my dad and moved halfway across the country and started life in a new place as an adult. So she, you know, was, was then in a new environment where she didn't know a lot of people. And again, it was easy to overlook what was really going on with her. Um, eventually, my dad got into the pastorate. Four kids came along. My mom continued to have struggles with her mental health. She she definitely had symptoms of schizophrenia and um, breaks with reality, psychotic episodes, but they were they were manageable enough um, that she was able to. To kind of hide them or keep them in the background. We we when I was growing up, I saw the effects of her schizophrenia, but I did not see it, it, them to the degree where you know it was very clear that this was the this was the problem. It was more like again, my mom was a quirky person. She was someone who you know most people would probably clear or classify as withdrawn. Um, maybe difficult to know. It was hard for her to have relationships with other people Um, and someone who had a hard time expressing both thoughts and emotions, which is very typical for people with schizophrenia. But again, she was able to manage and hide all of that well enough that people, no one really understood what was truly going on for her. Um, When I was a teenager, my dad left a position where he was pastoring a church and my family moved and we moved from... A rural setting my dad had been pastoring a rural church so we literally lived out in the country and we moved from there into a city and this was a huge change as you might imagine Um, lots of new experiences a higher level of of stress and stimulation in our environment um, culture shock lots of need for adjustments and changes and everyone in my family was able to over time make these adjustments and actually eventually Learn to really thrive and enjoy our new environment. But for my mom, there was so much stress and so much adjustment required. She was. This is the experience that really revealed her mental illness because she was unable to adapt um, and make the changes that were needed to that she needed to make in order to thrive and flourish in this new environment. So over the course of a couple of years, um, my mom's illness became progressively worse. To the point where we became very concerned. It was it was really apparent to us that something was seriously wrong with my mom. And we, my siblings and I, my sisters and I, actually went to my dad together and talked to him about what we were seeing and and asked him, you know, what can be done? Can we find some help for my mom? And you know, my family was under resourced. My dad was unemployed for a long time. We had not gone into this with any extra resources because my dad was a country pastor and you know they're generally not known for their wealth <laughs> um and my family was no exception there and and basically we were now living in, a, in an unfamiliar place in a city in poverty and my dad had a hard time figuring out how to find some help for my mom eventually yeah. he found a counselor who was able to talk to her for a few sessions for free um but that counselor was kind of in over his head as well. And I think was not trained and equipped to recognize and deal with the severity of mental illness that my mom was living with. So eventually my mom suffered a full and complete psychotic break that disabled her to the point where she was unable to function at the most basic levels. And that from that point on, you know, that was the day when my mom's mental illness became, it became impossible to ignore. Or hide or overlook or sort of limp along with like she had been doing for a long time um, she was hospitalized and received some medication you know received diagnosis and then after that was as many people are who have an illness similar to hers was in and out of the hospital for many years um, and really have, that's kind of been the cycle since then it's been a few decades now that we've had this cycle of repeating symptoms and hospitalizations. Although over time, my mom has has gotten better at managing her illness and um, has managed to go for a little bit longer between those times of crisis. So I'm more thankful for that. Yeah. So growing up, I mean,
1: obviously this plays out over a pretty long span of time, years and years of your life. What kind of impact does that have on you and your siblings? I mean, the family unit as a whole, you talk some in the book about ways that families are directly affected by a family member who's suffering from especially a severe mental illness with special rules and resource monopoly and stuff. What impact does that have on you guys as as a whole family unit?
2: Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I feel like I'm still I'm still figuring this out (laughs) for myself, this question, Um, although I I certainly understand and and talk frequently about some of of what we experienced and how how this impacted our functioning as a family and as individuals. You know, for us, really, it was it's an interesting dynamic because we all cared about each other and we all cared about the impact my mom's illness was having on our family. And yet we all tended to cope with it individually um, and to find our own ways to kind of take care of ourselves. Even while we, you know, we kind of worried about each other. I I think we all sort of lacked the resources to care for each other. Um, And because, you know, we were young. I mean, I was, I was 14 years old when this happened and I have two older siblings. My old, my brother's the oldest. He was, um, in college, He was a freshman or a sophomore in college and, and my youngest sibling was 12 at the time. So, you know, we were in the midst of some turbulent years ourselves and needing to, to grow up and develop normally and yeah. um, learn to be functional, healthy, responsible adults. So we just we pretty much had the resources we needed to cope ourselves and and did that in various ways. Um, For most of us, I think there was a a level of hyper responsibility that we developed, which is pretty common for families affected by issues like like schizophrenia um, and and other highly disruptive um, phenomena that really make a difference in family dynamics. You know, I became a very responsible young person who pretty much felt I needed to take all the responsibility for myself mm. and tried to shoulder a lot of, of my, my family's responsibilities as well and, and really took on myself, at least emotionally speaking, a sense that I was responsible for helping and even maybe trying to fix my mom.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, So there was a part of me that felt if I just if I loved her enough and I cared for her enough and I did enough to make her feel safe, she would get better. Yeah. And so I tried that strategy for a long time, um, you know, and, and that was um, well intentioned, but it was also uh, sort of based in based in a misunderstanding about what she needed, about what was really happening. And and I didn't really have all that information. Um, my family did not really receive a lot of support. Um, we didn't. Um, I never talked to a counselor until I was in college and went to the counseling center on campus. Um we didn't have a lot of support from our church or from other people in the community and we were just kind of going it alone. So, um, yeah, so that has an impact, you know, on young people in particular who need to grow up very quickly and kind of take responsibility for themselves. And even, you know, like I said, take on a bit of responsibility for other people to a degree that may or may not be, may or may not even really make any sense in the long run, but, um, it's easy, to, it's easy to take that on, especially when you're young. So that was some of the impact that it had on us. So you mentioned they're not getting a ton
1: of support from the community or from your church. I would imagine as a, a family who, I mean, your dad was a pastor, the church is one of the places maybe where you would turn first for help in some kind of crisis. Is that a route that, that y'all sought out, but it didn't, they didn't have anything to offer you? Or, I mean, where did you guys try to turn?
2: Yeah. So, again, because we were um, an under-resourced family, you know, we we needed to take advantage of um, free or really inexpensive resources. So, you know, my family was already living on food stamps, (laughs) Um, you know, um, shopping at secondhand stores or even making our own clothes. My sister and I made our own clothes. Um, you know, we were resourceful people, but really had few, few resources at our disposal. And the church definitely was one of the places that we would think to go. And at this point, you know, my dad was not in pastoral ministry. He was, but but we were active lay people in the church and very much involved in the life of the church. Yeah. And I know my dad reached out for help to the church and they did offer some help at the beginning. Um, I know they... Um provided some some food to our family, and um, I think maybe a little bit of financial assistance. but it was just at the very beginning of this crisis. and And I think there was a point where I suspect the church felt like, well, we've helped you so things should be better now. and didn't have a lot of understanding or patience for the idea that this would be an ongoing crisis for us. And I'm not sure we really understood that either. I know I didn't at the beginning you know didn't see this as something that was going to be a lifelong journey for us um and you know we went we the interesting one part of the interesting dynamic here is that we were living in the city we were living in a in a poor neighborhood in one area of the city and we went to church because of the denomination we were a part of we we just automatically went to a church in that denomination and it happened to be out in the suburbs in like a a pretty affluent area and so we had this cultural um sort of gap between us you know socioeconomic gap between us and much of the rest of the congregation which i think exacerbated the feeling that we were maybe not fully embraced or or fully um entitled to the church's resources um and may may have contributed to just a feeling of of shame on our part, which definitely entered into the equation for us. So we we definitely got the sense that and I think this was this came from multiple sources, including from our, our own selves, you know, in our own ideas and our own lives. But we definitely got the sense that this was something we needed to keep quiet about and just handle ourselves And um, that people would not want to hear about this, you know, that would it would freak them out if they heard what us talking about, what we were what we were living with, um, some of the questions that we had about it and some of the things we needed. So that's pretty much what we did. We kept pretty quiet about it. And life just kind of went on without any um, real interaction with with people in our church or or in our community around this. It was just something that we expected ourselves to to shoulder ourselves. And I definitely had the sense that other people expected this of us as well. Although I want to be fair and say, you know, as far as I know, nobody, say, in our church came to us and said, you guys need to keep quiet and just, you know, we don't want to hear about it or anything like that. It it wasn't overt. Um, as far as I know, but definitely had the sense that this was just something that we shouldn't ask other people to enter into with us. So, you know, I had a lot of, I, I think like a, with a lot of people, there's a faith crisis that goes along with a mental health crisis. I had a lot of faith related questions that came up for me in this period of time and, and really was in kind of a, a crisis of faith as a teenager. And, you know, I had never heard mental illness mentioned in my tr- in my church. Um, any of the churches that I had been part of, I had never heard it discussed in youth group or in Sunday school. Um, I didn't feel there was anybody I could go to, to ask these questions because they were things that had, they just just weren't addressed. Things like how can God let this happen to my family? You know, basic questions that people ask about suffering when they're walking through it. Um, and I just did not feel that there was a context to ask or hear the answers to questions like that around this kind of suffering. And so, you know, I just didn't I just didn't bring them up. Yeah. Um, and we, we just we kind of stayed quiet about about those things and really didn't receive any support. At the same time, I will say my church was a sanctuary um, for me and I think for my siblings as well. It was you know being involved in the youth group being involved in the church was very important for us and and it was a place that we could go and feel like we we belonged you know because there were, we were with other people our age who were believers um and there was a there was a real comfort in that and and there was a comfort too in going and being a normal kid you know a normal teenage kid and leaving some of our problems behind so there was something valuable in that at the same time it would have been A tremendous ministry to me and my family to have mental illness simply mentioned in the in the context of faith, Um, you know, to address some of these questions, to have someone to talk to. um, Just some very simple things would have done a lot to help, not to mention, you know, some of the other practical ways that churches can get involved and help families like mine.
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of what you just said is going to resonate with a lot of people because it's so common, right? We hear sometimes stories that are very overt, you know, hey, this isn't real, you shouldn't talk about this. But it seems like more common, probably, is, you know, just a sense that these aren't things that you talk about because nobody ever has, or things yeah. like that and i mean you make sure to point out in the book that the the goal isn't to you know bash the church as a whole or say that the whole thing's terrible as you just mentioned there's tons of valuable things but just to to kind of suggest some ways in which we could address these needs more head on and and more across the board so that more people aren't just saying well it wasn't ever addressed uh, i mean there's mm-hmm. a whole i was i made a list of all you know there's one chunk where you talk about you know, kind of unhelpful things in the church. And even when you're telling your story, you mention most of them, you know, stigma or the idea that Christians don't suffer or uninformed clergy or just silence in general or impatience with healing or, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit more to some of those? I mean, even theologically, just the spiritual confusion you just talked about of why would God let this happen? I mean, it seems like the response to a lot of that is you know we sing about victory or things like that that was a point that you made that i thought was particularly striking is how much we talk about victory and things like that but how do we balance that with the very real things that people are experiencing
2: yeah i think this is a huge issue in our churches actually we have i think in in many contexts largely forgotten how to talk about suffering and how to do so in a in a way that is fully informed by by Christian truth. Um, we mostly avoid it. <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, while we're mostly avoiding talking about suffering in our churches, because often I think it's because we think it's a downer. People don't want to hear about that. They don't want to come to church and, and, you know, hear things like your life is going to be hard. Sure. So we just don't tell them that. But the the funny thing is we have people sitting in the pews whose lives are hard. For one reason or another, everybody's yeah. life is hard for yeah. in, in some way. And for some people, life can be excruciating at times. And so while we're thinking we don't want to say these things to people, they're already living them. So by skipping over Christian theology and Christian teaching around suffering, we really do people the disservice of not only failing to give them the tools they need to make sense of what they're living, but also often sending the message that our faith has no answer for what they're walking through, yeah. or what they will walk through. You know, people who who come to church on Sunday morning and for whom life is great and they feel every day is an experience of victory. That is a temporary situation. Yeah. I can promise. I can promise that to everyone that not every day will be like that for you. So when people encounter suffering, they need to know that this does not mean. This does not undermine. The reality of their faith. This does not contradict what they believe, you know, believe and have affirmed about who God is and about his love for them. So when we allow people to be surprised by suffering, we do them a huge disservice. And when we fail to talk about it, we send the message, and I got this message as a a young person, that our faith just really doesn't have an answer for this kind of suffering. You know, this is an area where we just, we don't know what to say. So we don't say anything. And that fortunately that did not have the effect of, of causing me to abandon my faith altogether, but it could have, and it does for some people. Um, And, and even so, you know, it just left unanswered a lot of things that could have been answered for me a long time ago. And eventually, you know, I did find answers to those questions and, and, you know, found some peace with those, those questions. But, yeah, I think in our churches, if we were to address suffering more often and more fully and, and even specifically mention in, in that context, mental illness and mental health struggles, just to acknowledge that they're part of this conversation yeah. would go a long way for people so that we're not just leaving them out there in a, a cold, dark world without the tools they need to make sense of that and understand that within the context of Christian truth.
1: Yeah. And I think you even bring this up in the book, but, you know, if, especially, so in the United States, right, one in four adults in any given year are experiencing some kind of mental health struggle or one in five children. So to think about, you know, looking at your church and and a quarter of the people are going through something, you know, whatever it is, and to say, well, we're just not, we're not worried about that is, is, it seems like a huge miss.
2: It's a huge miss. And when you add that, add to that, I didn't talk about this in the book, but I don't think, because I think I learned this statistic after I wrote the book. Um, studies have shown, and these are not, this is not my research or any other, other Christian-based research, this is the National Institutes of Mental Health Research that has shown that when people are suffering from some kind of mental health problem and they actually decide to reach out for help and get help for that, the number one place they go is to a member of the clergy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a higher percentage than go to any form of mental, mental health practitioner or even a general medical doctor. So just statistically speaking, our churches are the number one resource for people in their minds around mental health. And if we are not addressing it, we're not willing to engage people around it, we don't have any decent understanding of it, um, we can't even point them to or maybe even can't even recognize it you know, the possibility of a mental health issue when we see it, we're doing people a huge disservice. We're missing an enormous ministry opportunity that God is actually bringing right to our doors um, on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. You mentioned some of your own research in this book. You mentioned uh, you refer to a study that you did in partnership with Leadership Journal that has some pretty striking
2: statistics in it. Can you tell us a bit about that study? Yeah. So I did this study through through Leadership Journal and also through a few other publications published by Christianity Today, um, specifically for people in church ministry and church leadership. So um, we emailed these folks. I think we ended up with more than 600 responses. And um, and, yeah, the book reports what we found, We found a, a variety of interesting statistics. One of them is. That 98 percent, you know, so so I went into this thinking there might be a lot of church leaders who would say, well, um, yeah, that that that's a problem that exists out there, but not really in my church, not really among Christians. But 98 percent of people who responded to my survey said, yes, they had seen mental illness within their own congregation. So it's nearly everyone, (laughs) at least in that survey has experienced this and acknowledges that it is present in their congregations. And yet only 12 and percent of them said they openly discuss mental illness in their church in a healthy way. Yeah. And at the same time, more than 40% of people of church leaders have actually reached out to and ministered to a family within their own congregation when someone has a mental illness in that family. So that means just a, only not even quite 60% of, of them are even intervening to, to reach out within their own congregation when they're aware of a mental health issue. And, you know, maybe not recognizing that there is a ministry opportunity present for them. Okay. About 30% of them said mental illness is never mentioned in sermons in their church. Um, 20% said it's mentioned once a year. And about 30% said maybe two or three times a year um so at least a third of our churches are never mentioning it at all and yeah. an, you know about 50% of them only mention it at most once a year yeah. at the same time you know the statistics of clergy being the number one place people go for help are holding true for people's experiences you know in this survey almost half of the church leaders said they are approached two to five times per year for help in dealing with mental illness Another 30% are approached even more often than that, to up to 12 times per year, specifically for help in dealing with a mental illness. That's more than 80% of them who are approached at least two times a year, even up to 12 times a year. So they, they are experiencing this. But I think often what I'm hearing from church leaders is, you know, their perspective is our church tends to attract a lot of people who have problems, you know, or, or <laughs> we have a lot of people coming to our church who just need, you know, a lot from us. And I'm, I'm like, it is not you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your church. It's the church. And why wouldn't we want them to do that? Yeah. Isn't we that the we goal? are out there. Exactly. <laughs> We're out there promising that we have a community of caring, compassionate people who are ready to meet you where you are and want to help you find, find the, what you need. And yet, A lot of church leaders are complaining when it actually happens. Um, And I think there, I want to be fair and compassionate about that. There are multiple reasons for that. One of which many feel overworked and many feel under equipped to do this kind of ministry. And yet, you know, neither of those has to be a a life sentence. (laughs) You know, there are solutions for those things, but ultimately, you know, this is an, is an opportunity that is coming our way and, it, I think it's helpful for church leaders to understand it is not just them. It is not just their church. This is a res- people's response to the promise of the church.
1: Yeah.
2: And it's what we say we want, and it's actually happening. So how can we respond to it and address it in a more helpful way?
1: Yeah, and I would point out, I've read some studies on this type of thing as well. And it's not even those, you know, where do you turn first in a time of crisis, you know, specifically a mental health crisis? Those numbers hold for people that don't go to church regularly Mm -hmm. anyway. That's still the number one place they go. And it's even higher for adolescents and youth, right? Which is when a lot of severe mental illness or mental illness as a whole comes on, you know, kind of starts to show itself is right in the adolescent youth range. And so if we could effectively, you know, have resources or know how to help people there, I I'm willing to bet that the whole rest of their life would look wildly different, you know? Yeah. If they got right there, Hey, this is a place that has some answers and help. And, you know,
2: exactly. It's such an opportunity and it's often an opportunity we're praying for. It, it just, might not look exactly the way we wanted it to or the way we thought we we thought it would. You know, sometimes I hear um, or read of of church leaders or, you know, hear stories from people of church leaders saying, well, if we start talking about that or we offer a ministry, uh, you know, around this, we're just going to get a lot of those people in our church. (laughs) And I'm thinking, number one, you are you are terribly misinformed because those people are already in your church <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a church full of those people you know if what right. you mean is people who are suffering people who are sometimes unattractive people who are difficult your church is full of them but number two who else do you want yeah but people who, who are in need and who recognize it yeah you know th- those are the people jesus said he came for and it's not the healthy who need a doctor it's those who are sick it's people who recognize their need for Christ, that Christ came for, yeah. um, you know, and that he wants us to minister to as well. So, yeah, if we're, we are we are often missing our calling here. So what can
1: people that work in churches or volunteer in churches or ministries or what practical steps would you recommend for them to take in terms of how can we address this need better?
2: Yeah, you know it really starts just like almost everything else we do. <laughs> it really needs to start with our theology. And I, I think this this larger issue of having a better understanding of suffering and offering that understanding to people within our churches could go a long way. Um, you know, t- contradicting the our cultural idea that that if we have, enough money or we live in the right place or we do everything right, you know, as a parent or a spouse or a professional that we won't have terrible things happen to us or we won't, maybe we'll suffer. We'll have some bad days, but we won't suffer in any really big incurable way. You know, we need to contradict that message. It's present within our culture and it's present within our churches. Help people understand that suffering is a normal part of life and, and just mentioning it so that people understand, oh, you know, when when we're praying for people within our congregation, um, our pastor actually mentions that there are people in our congregation, not by name, of course, but uh, there are people in our congregation who are suffering with anxiety and depression or with other forms of mental illness. And we just want to pray for them, you know, acknowledging mental illness within the context of our our conversation about suffering and our ministry towards suffering people goes a long way and it really starts with our own understanding about an acceptance of the presence of suffering in this life you know and then another key piece is our own understanding church leaders need to become educated on this topic and that does not mean you have to go out and get a degree in psychology or um, counseling or psychiatry it it can be as simple as spending an hour or two on the website for the National Institutes of Mental Health, yeah. <laughs> which has great, very clear information about different forms of mental health problems, what the symptoms look like, how they're typically treated, how how common they are, um, so that you can just have a, a even a very basic understanding of different forms of mental illness. Um, even better, you know, is to become educated and equipped beyond that doing some uh, seminars, doing some going to um, NAMI, for example, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and having them do an educational seminar in your church to help people better understand the experience of living with a mental health problem. Yeah. Um, engaging in mental health first aid, which trains people to act as first responders in a mental health crisis. There is absolutely no excuse, in my mind, for any church in the United States not to have at least one person who is trained in mental health first aid especially considering that our churches are often serving as triage centers for people with mental health problems. You know, just reaching out to some of the resources that are out there becoming better equipped and better informed lays that foundation of of operating with more confidence in this area and with better effectiveness. And then, you know, the third thing is really in our response. You know, how do we behave toward people who come to us or who are within our congregation? And I'm not going to say that this is an easy kind of ministry. It's It may not be. Um, it may not even be rewarding. It's not glamorous. <laughs> um, it's difficult, and it can be lifelong, yeah. you know, people's need for ministry in this area. So, you know, when we sign up for this, we need to know that we are signing up for something that can be difficult, and it can be demanding, and it it's not easily solved. And, you know, Americans don't like those, <laughs> those kinds <laughs> of problems. But the They're they're here. So, you know, I often encourage people to start with thinking about what they already know how to do to minister to suffering people. Churches are really good at um, walking with people through crisis, um, ministering to families who have a health issue. So, you know, when someone has cancer or a broken leg or is laid up for a while, you know, we visit them in the hospital. We bring them food. We take care of their kids, take care of their pets. You know, maybe clean their house for them. We do all kinds of things. Make sure they get to the doctor. But when people are walking through a mental health crisis, more often than not, they don't receive any of these kinds of practical helps. Yeah. Mental illness is often called the no casserole illness for that reason. Because the chances are, if you are affected by a mental health crisis yourself or in your family, nobody's stopping by that evening with a casserole for you. Yeah. You're going to get crickets. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of silence that people receive in response to that kind of problem. So just look at what we already know how to do and offer that kind of practical help to people who are affected by mental health problems. And then look at, you know, what what is exceptional about mental illness that that they might need from us and begin to offer some of those things. For example, support groups. You know, there are ministries out there such as Fresh Hope and the Mental Health Grace Alliance, great Christ-centered support groups. They have the programs already. They have the materials. All you need to do is get them and plug them in in your church and find somebody to lead it and leave the lights on on a Tuesday evening. (laughs) Um, We don't need to invent the wheel here. It's a matter of of putting these resources to work in our churches. Um, So support group ministries, um, counseling ministries, um, partnerships with local agencies and local mental health professionals. Um, you know, recognizing that people who are in a mental health crisis often have a, that spiritual crisis accompanying it. So, how do we make sure that we're addressing the spiritual needs of people who are walking through this kind of issue and listening to them and just assuring them that? The, the problem that they are experiencing does not mean God has abandoned them or walked away from them, which is a very common feeling for people. Yeah. Um, so just understanding some of those general needs and then those specific needs that the church is well equipped to meet. That does not mean we have to be everything. You know, we, we are not going to replace the need for psychiatric care or for medication and counseling, but at the same time, they're not going to replace us either. Yeah. You know, No one else is out there doing what the church can do. Being that resource, spiritual care, and for loving community, it's irreplaceable for people
1: who are walking through crisis. So good. If you want to connect with Amy, you can find her at uh, amysimpson.com, Facebook.com slash amy.simpson.author or on Twitter at ARE Simpson. uh, Or check out this book, Troubled Minds, or her other book, Anxious, on Amazon. And would you give us a 30-second elevator pitch about your new book coming out February 2018, Blessed Are the Unsatisfied, Finding Spiritual Freedom in an Imperfect World?
2: Yeah, so Blessed Are the Unsatisfied it I think it's a book that will appeal to a lot of people for whom you know mental health problem is is part of the, their reality because um basically what this book is addressing you know, you know let's face the reality that life is not satisfying it is not going to be totally satisfying for us and we we have this misconception often that um if we are in relationship with Christ it will be you know, that, that, that basically transforms an unsatisfying experience into a satisfying one. And so this, this book is contradict, not only contradicting that idea, but also offering a different kind of hope, a different kind of way to approach life so that we can experience there are actual blessings that come from acknowledging and embracing an unsatisfied life here and now and looking forward to um, the completely satisfying experience that we'll have in the next life. Awesome.
1: Well, I can't wait to read it. I'm looking forward to it. Great. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at robert-vore. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today, talking with us. Do you have any closing words for our listeners?
2: Um, I just encourage everybody to consider that this is this ministry to people with mental illness. You know, really is not just a mission for people who call themselves church leaders. You know, or for pastors. Um, for clergy. This is a mission for all of us. And there's a place here for all of us when it comes to loving our neighbors and just offering what we can, which often is simply a listening ear or being a safe person for someone to share their questions with, to acknowledge that they're in crisis, um, and and then loving them through that crisis rather than trying to fix them. Um, so this is some, there's something here for all of us, and it's, um, it's really a mission that, that Christ has given all of us.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. You may have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you so much. You too.
0: Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast.